What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is multidisciplinary artist and activist Annie Danger. Annie, I'm really happy to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Me too. So we like to start these interviews from the ground up. I, I do want to mention that the bio listed uh, for you on the Counterpulse site for the show that you're currently producing says that you're a multidisciplinary performing artist, transsexual, dyke, and tattoo artist. You're also <laughs> an activist and a motorcycle riding punk. Let's roll all that back a little bit, but... As a young artist, okay. when was the or, or as a young person, when was the first time you thought of yourself as an artist? Oh. And what kind of art were you doing or trying to do at the time? As a young person, I was always making things. I was drawing a lot. I was building little things, little sets and dioramas and stuff like that. Um, I really gravitated toward people who wanted to make and do with me. So I think it was pretty early. My um, my mother had been an artsy little left-handed child and the Catholics on the army base beat her left-handedness out of her. So when I came out weird and artsy and left-handed, she was like, this is creative. We're gonna let it thrive. And so I got a lot of good encouragement. Um, and so I was drawing from a very young age and I was a ham from a pretty young age. So I would say, I don't know, six, five, early, started drawing uh, really young. I think I have at my parents' house in Albuquerque, where I grew up, I have a painting of the Brave Little Toaster from that movie um, that I entered in the state fair, the New Mexico State Fair, and got a ribbon for from when I was like six, And you seven. got a ribbon. Yeah, I got a ribbon. <laughs> hey, congratulations. So, what led you to also be doing so that was that was drawing art what led you to be doing performance art as well mm, that one was a slightly slower burn performance art i mm. had sort of i had two tracks in my in my teens and in my childhood and one was this part of me that once i was comfortable really liked to ham it up really liked to play um, and found in high school and even in middle school that joining theater and hamming it up there, I had a natural gift for improv. And, you know, as, as a high school actor might be, was an all right actor, I think. Um, and kind of on a completely separate track was this part of me that was drawing, that was making zines. I got into the very far left political end of punk very early at like 12. Um, and they were just separate from each other for a long time. And then uh, my ticket out of mm. Albuquerque was a scholarship to the San Francisco Art Institute, which I sometimes accidentally call the Fart Institute, please forgive me, um, <laughs> where I did not finish a degree because um, it got too pricey. And I was like, mm, I got to get out of here. I'm too young and too punk. But I did find there a really open playground, which you'd hope with the privilege of going to a fancy fart school to do all sorts of things. And that's where I started trying to synthesize these really far apart parts of me of like my like drawing and my politics and my performance, which up until that point had been pretty much in the theater. 
What did it, what did that look like? What did that mean at that stage to kind of synthesize those two things? It's like very oh. specific to be dealing with the far left politics of that side of the punk world and then also be drawing things. Yeah, I mean, the, that part was easy. Like I was always drawing, you know, political art, you know, posters and zines and whatever just murals and some mural projects like that all made really easy sense to me there's such a direct through line i think the performance part really came roundabout so when i was at the fart institute i started i got there with a painting and drawing scholarship and a scholarship for photography and by the end i had been in sculpture i had been doing installation work i had been playing around with all these things that are like how am i able to connect with whoever's looking at my work to make it more live and more real than you can do with like a drawing, which is great, but for me was very static. And you had no interplay with the person after you'd made a thing and set it in front of them. And so I ended up in the little performance art corner of the Fart Institute called New Genres at the time. And that was where I started playing with sort of making performed art that was sort of like a a time-based version of the little pump drawings and posters and murals. Um, and I had a pretty formative intensive class I got to take with Guillermo Gomez Pena for two weeks over a spring break one time in like 2001 or something. And it was just this like two weeks intensive, spend six hours a day with Guillermo and make weird stuff. And some of it was a lot of the sort of theater exercises that he's doing now in parts of his performance. And some of it was sort of like other things, but it was this first moment where, and actually I think he said this to me, that we had a moment where we were supposed to bring in our art from other parts of our practice and talk through it. And everyone got to sort of look at and draw the connections. And I brought in all of these giant paintings I'd been working on that were like very figurative, very sort of tortured figurative art. I was a young trans woman, so. Um, and, all, you know, political art, I made zines, other stuff like that. And then everyone's looking at it, we're talking through it. And at some point he's like, here's my comment. You're a performance artist because everything you do goes through the filter of a body, of what it is like to be in a body on this planet. Something like that. And that obviously stuck and really was meaningful and helped me find a way. So also thank you to Guillermo. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the far left political end of punk, a little bit about your experience at the Art Institute. And you also mentioned that at the time you were a young trans woman. I'm, I'm wondering how those different pieces of your life were also coming together at the time, like, did you have a vision for what you would be doing with all those parts of your life? And and part of that is a kind of a funny question of like, did you imagine professional art as a pathway, as a professionalized thing? And I mean, you do all kinds of art right now. Do you think of it now as a profession? At the time in, you know, in my like late teens, right, I blast out here from Albuquerque. I am on my own in a new way. I am in a place, I am sort of learning how to be a woman in a way. You know, I had come out to my parents as trans when I was 15, but hadn't really been able to do more than that. Hadn't pulled more off. Um, so I'm doing that, I'm meeting new people, I'm learning how to be an adult, a young adult, 
And that just went right along with all of these other transitions in my life. Um, and so I didn't have a plan. I was just stumbling through it like you do. Most of us do, I think, at that age. Um, I more had desires. And I was just following them out and trying to get by. Uh, it was the Bay Area in 1999, 2000, 2001. I'm trying to find housing, you know, that I can afford. Um, so, no, at the time, I didn't have a plan beyond a lot of sort of teen punk rage at the world and how it should be and how it was. It's also part of why I left art school. And I also I spent a lot of time there without a lot of sort of nuance to my understanding of the world, pushing against the prof professionalization of art. Um, I certainly thought there should be artists who do things uh, for the good of people. I thought all art should be a little political, right? It should be doing something. Um, and I also didn't ever want to be a commercial artist. And I think for me, being a professional artist and being a commercial artist were conflated. Um, nowadays, it, I'm like, please pay me to make art. I'd really rather do that than my other day jobs. Um <laughs> So I didn't then, now do I view myself as a professional artist? Kind of. Um, I mean, I think to some degree, like, I'm not interested in saying I'm an artist with a capital A, as if that's different than all the artists with not a capital A. And that that is sort of a part of it being difficult for me to call myself an I'm an artist, but I am, when I make the list, when I make the list of what I am and what I do and how I try to be in this world, I am an artist. I also, you know, I'm a tattoo artist and I kind of separate that out from the art I make for my own sort of pleasure or exacting my vision upon the world or collaboration or whatever, because it's such a, it's such a service role. It's such a paid illustrator gig in a different way. I have questions about your tattoo art too, but I, one thing you said I wanted to follow up on, you said, I didn't have a plan beyond a lot of teen punk rage. I'm wondering how has your rage developed since then? Oh, it's it got so much more refined. I also just worked on a lot of it. I think I think a lot of people's entry into the punk world in my experience is through what some friends and I call you dad politics. Um and this isn't true for everyone, mm -hmm. but certainly I was raised I was raised through a, a little bit of a class transit, but a really middle class culture. And so it's not like I was experiencing a ton of injustices, but I was seeing them outside me. What I was experiencing was like somewhat violent conflict with my father, you know? And I think I learned a lot about what felt just and how furious to feel about justice from that odd and very common, you know, dysfunctional family dynamic. And so coming into this era we're talking about in my late teens, early 20s, it's very much rage. It's rage that's been put into my body from familial conflict and it is expressing into the world through like a real interest in and becoming attuned to the actual injustices happening. And then from there, it you stick with it long enough and it becomes more real, you know? Not that it wasn't real then, but I feel like over time of staying committed to those politics, deepening my understanding of them, deepening my connections with people who are developing these things, who are doing like real frontline work in this world, those are the moments where you go from you dad politics to really understanding your place in a whole world full of people trying to live a better life. Uh, and some of us have a lot of work to do and some of us have done a lot of work on that. Okay. So without getting into your current performance piece, which we're going to talk about, <laughs> what is it, what do you mean when you say try to make a better life? 
Mm, that's my try to make a better life is often my catch-all phrase for all of the things big and small that we are doing, organized and disorganized, to to world build. I feel like one of the actual things about being a human person in this species is is world building, is storytelling, is 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 experimenting with having a society of some sort or another and how we design it. Um, and I think we're all engaged in that regularly, even if all we're doing is trying to get through our daily life. So I say trying to build a better world, and I mean people literally trying to get by. And I say trying to build a better world, and I mean like the massive organizing efforts that we've seen over time, over the last 100 years, over the last 50 years, over the last five years of people really putting in hours and hours and weeks and months and lives to actually build a better world, to try and escape us from the death cult. I, the death cult. I love that you talked about world building. I feel like I hear about that when we talk about fiction. Mm. We hear about world building when we talk about, you know, the fantasy authors. And you're talking about being an active participant in the world that we are creating. And I want to get into that more with your play. But before we get there, talk to me about being a tattoo artist it's a particular responsibility because your clients are like committing your work to their bodies for life it's pretty intimate and you also end up doing things that maybe people who aren't familiar with tattooing um aren't thinking about like shaving all kinds of parts of people's bodies along the way what draws you to tattooing and also feel free to tell a few tattooing stories along the way <laughs> Well, punk also, punk gave me a lot, man. Punk really saved my life a couple of times, but punk rock also made it really easy to become a tattoo artist because I was already a fairly skilled illustrator and drawer. And I was already doing things that translate easily to ink. And I was already, I wasn't totally a crusty, but I was a little bit crusty sitting around being like, someday I'm going to get a machine and tattoo for real. And I had, you know, I was doing stick and pokes that were getting more and more elaborate, just little homemade tattoos with a needle and ink. Um, and then for my 22nd birthday in the year 2003, my, um, my friends pulled their money together and got me a little starter kit tattooing. And I sat down and was like, okay, I'm going to tattoo on an orange because you just tattoo orange or a grapefruit. I did that for about 10 minutes. And I was like, this is not like skin. I tattoo skin all the time. And I put a tattoo on my leg, which is still there and looks fantastic. You can definitely read what it says. And then I was surrounded by people who were fine with bad tattoos. And so I got to learn on a bunch of people instead of on myself and really just keep working from there. So that's what drew me is this is a thing I like to do. It's interesting. It seems kind of cool. It pays money that I'm not making other ways as a 22-year-old um, living in Oakland at the time. And people were willing. So it was fun and a fun way to connect. 20 years later, I'm still tattooing. And tattooing far less bad tattoos. You were... I <laughs> I like to hope I do none, but the honest truth is everyone isn't their best at work every day. And so in that point, we actually get to do our best to have good ethics and talk about how to how to work through those moments with someone because it is terrifying and wild that someone's like, sure, draw this on me forever. And you're like, cool, a couple hours from now, that'll be on you forever and it'll be my responsibility. <laughs> It's a wild thing. And, you know, I'm happy to share that. I have asked you to share that responsibility with me and had have had a great experience with it. Um, 
it's it's also a pretty intimate experience i mentioned like the the side of you know shaving parts of people's bodies that don't otherwise get shaved frequently but it's also like spending intimate time with someone as they're making a permanent change to their body i'm wondering if you can just like if you have any reflection on that experience either in particular experiences of it or the overall relationship that you build in that context yeah tattooing is a really fabulous and strange flavor of intimacy um it's pretty rare that i'm tattooing people that i know super well and might have otherwise shared that level of closeness with and so you just you dive in head first to a deep deep hole and you come up very shortly later and that is the type of intimacy you're doing so yeah i'm shaving people i'm very good at shaving people being a trans woman and being a tattoo artist makes you a very good shaver (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah you're shaving people you're discussing with them like the process of what they think they want and how you're going to get there you know some people come to you with the exact thing they want it's a clear drawing you're like great let me make this a stencil we'll tattoo this on you a lot of other things it's murkier And you have this sort of multiple translation steps between what someone feels they want, which is really, you know, when you imagine a thing, there may or may not be a clear image, but it's an emotional image. It's an image image with a huge amount of dimension that's not the lines of the image. And then that has to come out of someone's brain or their heart and into an email or into our conversation and onto some paper. And maybe I'm drawing or maybe they have five different things they want me to combine, but we need to get a different you know, different tone, different emotional tone out of it. I sometimes often get to find out what it's about for them. Sometimes I don't. There's a little almost like counseling life coaching moment for about 10 minutes to 20 minutes in there when you're devising a tattoo with someone and really thinking through how it's going to be the best for them based on your best understanding of what they want. And when that goes well, you go through then these other translations where then I draw it and you approve it. And then I make it into a stencil and print that on your skin and then you approve it. And then I tattoo it, which is its whole own actual process, the drawing of it again on skin with a vibrating pen that is stabbing some specific depth into your skin, the difference of which is like millimeters or portions of millimeters to make a good tattoo or a bad tattoo. There's all this sort of actual craft to it. And then in the end, it still has to heal well. You have to heal it well. Your body has to heal it well. And then we'll see. We'll see if we made it through all those steps of translation to give you something that feels meaningful to you. And that is actually a really pleasurable process, especially when you're feeling on top of your game about it. And let's get a shameless plug. If folks who are listening are potentially interested in checking out your tattoo work, potentially interested in hitting you up for tattoo work, how can they do that? They can find me at Danger Tattoos on Instagram danger tattoos on instagram you can see photos of photos and some videos of annie's tattoo work um and also get in touch there absolutely yeah it's a great way to look at all my work and then just shoot me a dm great okay moving back to the performance side of things so before doing this interview i did a little bit of googling and found out uh, about some of your pre- uh-oh uh some of your previous shows at counterpost i'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the show you did called the the great church of holy F**k, and also just the sf weekly headline on it is maybe one of my favorite headlines for a show ever the headline was 
any danger, she'll take your body on a spiritual journey. <laughs> Is that what you... <laughs> Do you remember that? I don't remember that headline. That's fantastic. I should Google myself more. <laughs> is is that what you do in your performance art? That is what I do in my performance art. Our bodies go on spiritual journeys. Get ready. Buy a ticket. Um, well, I can certainly explain how that was an excellent headline for that show. And I can also talk about that headline. Actually, it is very meaningful to me. So, um Small to large. That show in particular, uh, The Great Church of the Holy F**k, I developed a version of it in response to a call out for art for a thing that happened, I think, 2011 or 12 at the National Queer Arts Festival called This Is What I Want. And it was really open. It was like queers telling stories about desire and what they want. And what I ended up making was... um, a mini church service. I grew up Catholic. I was an altar boy. It totally worked. Um, and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it wasn't necessarily calling out Catholicism. It was just sort of playing with archetypes. Um, and I think the archetype of a mass and a priest, uh, regardless of what um, religious and cultural experiences we've had, is like one we know how to play with some because of this particular pop culture we live in. And so I was playing with that. And it was really about uh, this idea of sort of what do, what do I think, what transformation, what transubstantiation can happen in a mass? And what do I want to say about actual holiness and actual sort of like broad-minded like love and love ethics? And so this entire piece is about, well, it starts as a mass. Like you go in and there's a there's a priest, it's me, there's like a little bit of music-y hymnal service happening as you come in, you sit down, there's, there's the program is sort of set up as a hymnal, there's an altar, it's, it's very, very vaguely Catholic mass in that way, um, except for the whole church is about sex, it's the great church of the holy fuck, and it is really talking about the ways in which, A, we all have been taught to look for what's wrong with ourselves and with our bodies every time we think of it, every time we pass a mirror, every time we get a vision of ourselves interacting and how that can sometimes be its most intense, but also its most uh, alchemical in moments of really true sort of sexual communion with people. And so the math starts funny. Everything I do tries to start funny and it goes sort of wins its way till you've had a fair amount of intimate stories from me, the priests that are clearly intimate stories from me, Annie Danger, um, and by the end, instead of sort of a little Eucharist scenario with the body and blood of Christ or whatever, what you're getting is uh, people line up and they come up to me and a couple other folks who are sort of ministering in this way. And we have a big chalice full of mirrors that are about an inch and a half wide, little round inch and a half mirrors. And someone comes up and whispers in our ear something, some way they dislike themselves, some way they hate their body that they sort of look for when they, when they think about themselves, that they sort of seek out this thing they dislike and then sort of mentally punish themselves for. And we take it from them, we receive it, and we give them this little mirror in return, and we say, you know, like, that's ours now. We'll put it to rest. You don't get to hold it anymore. You don't get to have it anymore. You don't get to do it anymore. Here's this mirror. May you see yourself in the uh, light of love. And there's just before that, we've had a really beautiful moment, a very quiet story of me having a revelation about being loved and seeing myself in a lovable light for the first time while in the middle of getting absolutely railed by a lover 
in like the Tennessee sunshine. Um, and I look down at her and I have this realization, mid-sex. I'm like, you love me, don't you? And she goes, I do. I really, really do. And that was the first time it soaked in. We had been dating for like two years at that point. So it centers around that story, around some very Belhoopsian notions of love and loving, and around this notion that holiness is like open-heartedness. Um, and by the end, everyone's crying and telling us their secrets, and then we all sing together, and then the show's over. So that we did, we did go on a spiritual journey with our body in that show. That's right. It sounds like some of the themes and the performance styles, at least, are also resonant in your new show, The Hands That Feed You. It's being presented at Counterpulse. Let's go there. Uh, the world is ending. It's a surreal game show of theft and collaboration, but it's also kind of a organizing meeting. And also, <laughs> there's cash prizes, perhaps. What yeah. is The Hands That Feed You, and how did you end up with the idea for it? What can people expect when they come to the show? Okay. Um, well, one... With this show, I just want to get in the front end before I talk about the content. People can expect to wear a good fitting N95 or KN95 mask. We'll be having them there. We're trying to keep everyone safe, including the performers. We will have the HVAC on with MERV 13 filters to filter airborne virus, and I'm bringing extra air filtration. People can expect that everyone there, including themselves, will have stayed home if they're sick at all, even if they're testing negative for COVID. Just to say. We're living in a pandemic world. Doing what we can, yes. We, uh, the show itself, the show itself is beautiful. It is a game show, uh, very fun, very campy, very Price is Right, very family feud. It is hosted by a game show host named Dick Nichols. Uh, and it is a game show all about how we feel about the end of the world. The show starts with all of the cash, actual genuine cash that people could win on stage. And we have uh, people who are uh, ticket buyers can volunteer to uh, be a contestant. And if you're a contestant, you get brought on stage. You are, um, you are competing uh, with the other contestants to guess the top, uh, the top answers in a live survey that we do of the audience for each question. So these questions are about sort of our like horrible fantasies about the near future. So it's like, what would you do for a glass of water? is one of the questions and we pull the audience in real time. Everyone will be downloading as they get into the theater, a Kahoot app, which is just a free teaching app uh, so that they can submit answers to the survey. And then we're betting on what the most popular answer to these questions are about these sort of glib and terrifying visions we have of a future that may or may not be ours to be afraid of. And then there's surprises, but I can't tell you those. Okay, we can know about the prizes, but can you tell us a little bit about the props? I know you've been hard at work prepping with big things. I have been prepping with large things. I right now, uh, when we finish this interview, uh, need to go pick up the hands from downstairs. My na downstairs neighbor has been helping me paint them. There are the the podiums that podia that the audience, uh, the contestants stand at when they're participating are enormous hands, four and a half foot tall hands in obscene gestures and multi-bright colors. Uh, and the money that we're competing for is stuffed under the fingernails of those hands. So that has been a pleasure to make. I'm also standing here near this other set piece, which is a eight or nine foot wide giant mouth that looms overhead. And one of the rounds of the game that sort of the, the round that adds chaos to things that helps mix up the numbers 
where people who are losing can win big is uh, people pull a tooth out of the mouth and the tooth has a an action in it that you can do that could really shake up the numbers. And is there any one thing, if if you were to tell people who are thinking about going but don't really know what to expect, is there one thing that you hope people walk away from leaving this show? Mm. I hope if nothing else, people walk away from this show with a little bit of love in their heart and a new eye on what it means to build the world that we want to live in. And we are going to end on that note about world building. Annie, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And that's the voice of this week's resistance in residence artist, multidisciplinary performing artist, transsexual dyke and tattoo artist, Annie Danger. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs> <laughs>